Generation Church, based in the beautiful Rex Theater in the heart of downtown Pensacola, Florida. Our hope is that today's teaching will encourage and equip you to be firm in faith, to fulfill the call of God in your life, and to finish well. Grab your Bible, open up your notes app, and let's dive in. A reading of Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, excuse me, perseverance, make supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and the opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be with the brothers and the love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Generation Church. How's everybody doing? Okay, awesome. Good. Well, I'm uh, excited to share on this passage that we just read. Uh, beforehand, I just want to remind you, if you, didn't, you weren't here at the beginning of the service, uh, next week we have a, a special Sunday. It's our casting, a vision casting Sunday we call Entrusted. Uh, it's a campaign that we start, and if you consider yourself a member of Generation Church, you don't want to miss it. Uh, it will not be live streamed because we're going to go over also some of the, uh, the financials. And so to that purpose, uh, it'll all be in-house, uh, but you are invited to come and be here. So back to our text. And uh, one thing that's kind of interesting is uh, that first word that Ben uh, read. Um, up till now in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul's uh, phrases and thoughts have been intertwined with uh, words such as therefore and now then. But the first word we see here is finally, meaning that we're at the end of the letter of Ephesians. Good job, everybody who's been here for 13 weeks uh, going through this, this letter. And hasn't it been rich? Hasn't it been awesome? I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. But now we reach the end of the letter. And man, what an epic conclusion. Uh, I think we need to kind of recap everything. And I'm not going to recap 13 weeks worth. But just to kind of remind you the, the whole of that letter, uh, chapters one through three really is all about the wealth of the believer, what we have in Christ. And then uh, it went on to the walk of the believer, chapters four and five, where we discussed what it means to walk uh, in a manner worthy of the calling. We walk in unity, in purity, in love, in light, in wisdom. We learned what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling at home, in the workplace. 
And so finally, after 12 weeks, like I said, this epic conclusion. So if we were talking about the wealth of the believer, the walk of the believer, here we have the warfare of the believer. And if it is truly a warfare, what a great reminder in verse 10, when we see what I could only call the the trinity of power here, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I kind of want to look at that phrase real quick because I think it's really important when we see what this letter has all been about, what Paul has been really wanting to say through this all. And he says, uh, be strong in the strength of his might. His might is really the nature of who God is. He is God Almighty in the strength of his might. In other words, it is his acting power on our behalf. And then the command to be strong in the Lord, and that is the result of his power in us. In other words, it's what we've been discussing this whole time. It's nothing that we do, nothing that we did. It's in Christ. We have everything in Christ. It is Almighty God strengthening us by his own power. Okay, but strengthened for what? And so we kind of get an idea as we read verses 11, and I'm going to skip 12 purposefully and just go 11 and 13. So read with me. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And if we read verse 14, stand therefore. If you haven't caught on yet, this is a call to stand. This is a call to stand. Now, when I think of that word to stand, you know, to stand can mean, you know, just kind of stand casually. We're waiting for the bus or I don't know. But here I think the idea behind this call to stand is to stand um, against something, stand for something, stand with something. And that's what we're going to look at. And it kind of reminds me of that game maybe you, got, you used to play as a kid, uh, King of the Hill. With your buddies, you'd get at the bottom of a hill, you'd have to race to the top, and if whoever was there at the top would then have to push off all the others, and whoever was the last man standing kind of won. And, and when I look at that verse, to stand, to withstand, that's kind of the, the image I'm getting here. So as we look at this call to stand, I want us to identify three things, and it's really three things that Paul identifies in this passage this morning. We're going to identify where we are standing, that is, our environment. We're going to identify who we're standing against, that is, our enemy. And we're going to identify what we're standing with, that is, our equipment. So first, our environment. Where are we standing? Well, we get a clue in this passage. And the clue is this, that we are to put on the armor of God. You look at what you put on, and that's how you know where you're standing. Listen, when you step into the kingdom of God, you step into a battleground. Now, many would prefer if it were more of a playground, if we're being honest, right? A battleground, really? And sadly, many live their Christian lives as if they're in a, a playground. Let me explain. When, when we have this call to come to Jesus, perhaps there are some that have come because of the promise, he'll take care of you. And though that is true, that is only part of the gospel. We need to understand the whole of the gospel. Why are we coming to Jesus? Yes, he'll take care of us, but that's the byproduct. That's the result. But first we come to Jesus and we see this in Ephesians chapter two more precisely. And I wanted to read through it again because I think it really is the the whole of what Paul was constructing for the whole letter. And what, what we realize is that we are to come to Jesus because without him, we're lost. Without him, we're dead. And do we understand our need of him? It says in Ephesians chapter two, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. This is what we were. 
We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that's, again, part of the gospel is understanding our need of a savior. Without Christ, we are lost, we are doomed, we are dead. But that's not, that's not all. The other great news about the gospel is what God offers. Not only that he'll take care of us, but that he is the solution to our need of him. And I love it how how it's put this way. Read with me, verse four. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So we know we're in need of a savior, but it's his kindness that draws us. And so that's why we come to Jesus. Yes, there's a promise he'll take care of you, but also without him, you were lost and dead. And also you need him because it's his kindness that he offers. And look at the promises that go along with what happens when we come to Jesus, that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. There's that image again of being on top of the hill, right? Well, here's the deal. When you're on top of the hill and you're seated with Christ, just have that imagery with me for a second. The enemy of our souls wants to do everything to dethrone us, to take that position of authority that is rightfully ours in Christ Jesus. And you know what? That enemy wants that position desperately and he'll do everything to try to bring you down. But we have great news as we look at this environment That in Christ, we don't fight for victory. We fight from a position of victory. We are already in conquered land. Jesus already conquered the enemy as we are going to see. And so that is our reassurance that this environment that we're in, this battleground that we're in, yes, we need to arm up. There are things that we need to do. But listen, the battle is already won. So we've identified the environment. We're in a spiritual war. What do we do? Do we just hide and look for a bunker and hide? No, because if you read in verse 12, we go and we see that word that we are to wrestle. If we are to wrestle, this means two things, that we are not spectators in this war, but also that we're not victims. We are not victims. Listen, you're in the army now. If you are in Christ, you're in the army now. Let's wake up. We are in a battleground. And now what's the next step? Once you realize your environment It's time to do some recon on the enemy, to identify the enemy's routines, the enemy's tasks. This will help us. This is how you fight. So let me talk about the enemy for a minute. And let me first talk about what the enemy is not. It's very interesting that Paul, the first thing he says in identifying the enemy, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This flesh and blood is actually talking about mankind. We do not fight against people. Let me say that again, because sometimes we can think that. We do not fight against people, against flesh and blood. Now, I know what maybe some of you might be thinking. Oh, yeah, really? I look at the rampant evil around me, the violence, the murder. I just have to listen to the news and see everything going on. That's man's doing. To which I'd reply, yes, man is definitely responsible for that. Evil done by man's hands. That's true. And then maybe you'd go even further and like, well, what about even my personal life? I mean, I've been accused and hurt and tested and made fun of by people. It sure feels like I'm fighting and wrestling with flesh and blood. To which I'd say, yeah, 
I hear you, absolutely. But here's the deal. If you just stay on that, and if you look at your enemy as flesh and blood, you're going to be fighting the wrong enemy. Because underneath the surface of whatever conflict you may be going through or observing, there is a greater evil at play. You see, the devil's going to use man's attitudes and situations and hide behind them so he can go about freely doing his thing. And what do we do? We focus our anger, our hurt, our distrust on people. Meanwhile, the real culprit who might be animating the person in front of you, but guess what? He might also be influencing you by maybe some door that you've let open. And so guess what? The enemy is getting away with it when we think that we're fighting against flesh and blood. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We don't destroy people, we destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So what Paul is saying here is the human being created in God's image is not your enemy. Well, then who is? So we look at Verse 11 first, where we see enemy number one, uh, what I would call the mastermind here. His name is very clear. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Let me talk about the devil just for a minute. The devil really just means accuser. Satan is another word for the devil. It means adversary. He is our accuser, our adversary. He's known as the angel of light, so he can be very deceiving. He's known as the God of this age. And so he can be very appealing. And here's the clincher. Many deny he actually exists. This this really blew me away. There was a recent Barna poll and they asked a group of Christians. They said, do you think that the devil is a living being or a symbol of evil? And would you believe it? 32% of these Christians said that there is no literal devil. And and this is why it's crazy and even dangerous. Actually, think this and you disagree with Jesus himself, who is quoted in Luke chapter 10, seeing and saying, I saw Satan fall from heaven. He's talking about a real living being. Not only that, but Jesus encountered the devil himself in the epic showdown in the desert when he was tempted and prevailed. Jesus taught that Satan was real. The Bible teaches that Satan is real. And I think that the reason that uh, a lot of times there's going to be opinions that try to say something else, it's part of the devil's schemes. That's like the greatest trick of all. In fact, Charles Baudelaire, a French poet, said it this way, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And you know, we live in that kind of world right now. And we have to open our eyes. Listen, the devil exists, but guess what? He is limited. Unlike our God, he is not all-knowing. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-present. But if that's the case, then here's a question we need to ask. How then does he accomplish so much all over the world at the same time? Well, the reason is because of enemy number two that is addressed here in Ephesians chapter 6, and that is his organized helpers. So let's look at his organized helpers real quick. Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So let's look at these three. Now, to really be in short, to say in short, this is a defined army of demonic creatures assisting Satan. 
But let's see, by looking at these titles that Paul gives, inspired by the Holy Spirit, let's see what these names can teach us. The first title given is Rules and Authorities. Now, how do you know what these rules and rulers and authorities are? You look at other passages where Paul is talking about the two together. So what you see, for example, is in Colossians chapter 1, 16, a letter to the Colossians. Paul says, For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, and here's the two, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So let me first say this concerning the devil's organized helpers, and let me definitely explain the context here. Jesus created them. God created these spiritual living beings. Just like whatever he created, he looked back at it and said, this is good. What God created, everything he's created is good. The spiritual beings that God created were good. And we know from scripture glimpses and pieces of this past that happened where the devil who was actually, let me just put it this way, the worship leader in heaven, and he decided to rebel against God, want to take his place and got displaced. Uh, and a third of the heavenly angelic beings followed him in that rebellion. And so God created them, but because of this great rebellion, they became fallen angels. And here's the bad news. They are a highly organized system. They've been around for thousands and thousands of years, meaning they can recognize the patterns. They know how to attack you. They've been following you. They know what, how to trap you, how to trick you, how to tempt you. But here's the good news. These fallen angels, as I said, constitute one third, meaning that we have two thirds angels in heaven fighting on our behalf. The fallen angels are outnumbered, but that's not even the best news. Here's the best news of all. Like I said, Jesus created them. Guess what? He also conquered them. And we see this in the same letter in Colossians chapter two, verse 14. It says, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us, human beings, with its legal demands. How did he do this? We talked about it at communion. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now watch this, verse 15. This is where we see the, that title we've been talking about. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Is that not the greatest news of all? We already talked about this environment already be, being conquered. We're, we're fighting and conquered land. But here's the deal. He conquered the rulers and authorities. We have victory over these rulers and authorities. So let's look at the second title that Paul gives and see what we can, just glimpses. We don't have time to go through an extensive study, but just glimpses of what we can gather from this. The next title is these cosmic powers of darkness. And as I was studying this, you know, cosmic means uh, cosmos, which is world. So this, these world powers of darkness. And what I believe this is, is these are entities created for God's purpose. These are entities. So this could be the sun, the stars, nature, fertility, military, uh, men, women. It, like it's anything that was created for God's purpose that somehow goes wrong. And here's how it goes wrong. Please get this. It goes wrong when they are elevated as gods. Whenever you worship creation, you're elevating it as God. You're opening a door for the cosmic powers behind it to take control. Because we're living in a world that is controlled by darkness. And we may not see it with our physical eyes, but it's there. And so whatever is elevated as a God, not capital G, is a form of idolatry. And even today, 
Man in different other forms worships the creation instead of the creator. When you worship creation, when you trust creation above the creator, listen, you're opening a door to darkness and you become enslaved to the powers that come behind a deified creation. We must, here's the lesson, if you want, if you will, for that title for us, the takeaway, we must only worship the creator. Look at your life and make sure that you are only worshiping the creator. You are not giving more room to any other thing created because of the dangers that could come because of that. Here's the third title that Paul gives. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The, the takeaway I want to get from this is, is when you read that, you might think, wait, there's, there's evil in heaven? No, that's misunderstanding. Look, heavenly places, it's plural. In other words, Paul is referencing, and we know this from other writings from Paul, he's referencing heavens as the sky, as the, the heavens we see, and then there's the heaven we don't see. And so in the heaven we don't see, I assure you, there is no contamination, contamination in that heaven. That's the heaven where God dwells. But there is demonic influence in the heavens surrounding the earth. Now, the good news for us is in Christ, we are set free from that. So that's very short explanation of those, those titles. And you might want to discover even more. But as we continue this recon of the enemy, I want to uncover some tactics as well. You see, because the enemy, some attacks are full frontal. It's what we know as persecution that comes from the outside. Now, it's horrible, but history also shows us that this kind of attack can actually backfire on the enemy because how many know through persecution, there's been great growth in the church. Perhaps the more dangerous attack of the enemy is a more subtle infiltration, what I would call pollution from the inside that attacks the church from the inside. And I want to address those schemes of the devil because they aim at two things, referencing Ephesians 4. It's aiming at the unity and the integrity of the new humanity. And so we need to address that. Anything that causes disunity, which would be separation from the body, and anything causing impurity, which would be separation from the head, is what the devil is after in us individually. He will try to separate us from the body or separate us from the head. That is his strategy. Why? Because he knows that the devil is no match to you plus God. But... He is a thousand times stronger than you alone. And so his strategy is to separate you from the body or worse, from the head. And so if you feel and you kind of identify in this moment that strategy happening in your life, be vulnerable about it. Speak to someone about it and don't let the enemy take any headway in one of those two things. We do not, we, we, we denounce disunity and we denounce a lack of integrity, of impurity in the body of Christ. So now we've identified the environment. We're in a battleground. It's war. And we've done some recon on the enemy as a result. But Paul goes on to now say, hey guys, it's time to gear up. So we're going to look at our equipment. And our equipment, man, it's incredible. Just the title alone, we've been reading it, the full armor of God. A couple of things on that, and it's kind of in your notes too, so you can follow along. But the full armor of God, that idea, two, two thoughts. First, that word full or the whole armor of God. In other words, we have everything we need with that whole armor. If we understand what that whole armor is, we are told that's all we need. But also, we don't get to pick and choose. We need to put on the whole armor of God. 
The other thing is, it's the armor of God. In other words, it's a gift from him. It comes from him, like we read in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, right? And the strength of his might. So it comes from him. But also I believe, and, and, and you know, it's really interesting to see how many times in Ephesians, Paul references the Old Testament. I believe Paul is referencing the Old Testament using this armor. He knows Isaiah and he knows that the, mess, the, the, the Messiah wears these armors in Isaiah. So you see in your outline, there's some references to Isaiah. I think there's one also reference to Psalm and it's actually referencing naming that armor. And so how cool to think, because basically what it's saying is that it, it, this armor was God's armor that he used to describe and reveal his character to the people. More than that, the traits of the Messiah to come that we know is Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind as we look at this, and, and that'll be part of our conclusion. But let's look in depth a little bit at these, this armor. And it's funny because I was talking with someone this week. I was like, you know, I could have, I could have, my challenge this morning as I looked at this armor was to really risk being very VBS-ish, right? And, you know, kind of show a picture of the armor and explain. And so that was a challenge for me. I was like, uh, I guess I'm not going to bring a felt board, right? Uh, maybe it's better to just kind of go in, in the message. Uh, and, and even more so, the reason I decided not to show any pictures is because what I really want you to get, it's not so much the armor, but what that armor's name is. So when we look at the belt of truth, yes, we'll look at what what the belt is and what it signifies. But the most important thing, what you're putting on is truth. You're putting on truth. And then the belt helps us understand why that truth is important. Okay. So let's look at the belt of truth. That's a good place to start, I believe, because one of the names of the enemy is the father of lies. So what better way to defeat him than with truth? Well, the one thing about the belt is that, uh, and you think of armor and Paul's thinking of armor, you know, think about it. He's in prison. He's seeing centurions come and go. And that armor, the, the belt held the sword, held the breastplate. In other words, everything hinged upon that belt. And I believe in the same way, everything hinges upon us being men and women of integrity men and women of truth. We need to fight for truth. You remember in Ephesians 4, he actually uses the importance of telling the truth, especially to believers, to not withhold from believers, to not lie to believers. Truth is so vital, so important. It's the basis for trust. And as I thought of that, that word, I, I, I caught this story. You guys have heard of the Great Wall of China before? It's this big wall across Asia, Asia 13,170 miles long right? Really, really long, really, really, really thick. But maybe you didn't know this. So it was to protect from invaders. Well, guess what? A hundred years in after that wall was built, it had already been invaded three times. How did it get invaded? Did they go around the wall? No. Did they go over the wall? No. You know what they did? They bribed the gatekeeper. Oh, when I heard that story, I was like, man, that's it. Why should we be men and women of truth, men and women of integrity? Because that's where the enemy attacks. When they put all their effort and, and money in building this big wall. And what they did is they bribed the gatekeeper. And, you know, symbolically, that's what we are. We are the gatekeeper of, of our heart, of our soul. We got to be careful what we let in, what we see, what we hear, what we say. And so let's make sure that we are men and women of integrity. Put on the belt of truth. Warren Wearsby says this, Truth is the integrating force in the life of the victorious Christian. And that's what we are. When we are being called to stand, it's because we're meant to be victorious based on the victory of Jesus. And so a victorious Christian puts on the belt of truth. Let's be men and women of truth that celebrate truth, that live by truth. The second piece of armor 
is the breastplate of righteousness. So a breastplate is these metal plates that covered the whole body from the neck to the waist. But again, we're looking at the word righteousness. In Christ, we are made righteous. We are made right. Another word for righteousness that I really like is, is the word justified. Because it reminds me, just as if I'd never sinned. And that's, and that's who we are. We are made righteous. It's like everything comes back to zero when we come to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made him to be sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And so what I see here, this breastplate of righteousness, like I've been saying, the armor is portraying that we are to put on Christ. But I think there's also an element of daily appropriation. And I think it's believing this truth that in Christ, you can live righteously. Like don't, don't think that, you know, a lot of times there's this saying in the church, oh, I'm a sinner saved by grace. You know, I do my best. And I'm okay. There's an aspect to that, to, to be vulnerable, but there's also a call to stand and we are to stand for what is right. We are to stand in righteousness. We are to stand proudly as I am obeying Christ. I know I am able to, and I am, I am equipped to obey Christ. I recognize it. It's all because of him, but I actually can do it. You can live righteously. We don't hide before, behind any kind of weakness. Basically, this breastplate of righteousness is a Holy Spirit-given, blood-bought behavior change. You don't do what you used to. If you're still doing it, you need to deal with it immediately. You need to confess it to God. That is not who you are, to quote what I said a couple of weeks ago. Now, that doesn't mean we're perfect. doesn't mean we don't fail every day, but we refuse to stay. The righteous man gets up again. He falls, he gets up again, and he stands. And we do it, again, only by the power of his might. Absolutely. It's his righteousness in us, but his righteousness can allow for us to live righteously, to walk in obedience. And the reason I speak with such uh, authority in this way is because I believe that if we can walk righteously and believe that we have the desire and the power to, in his spirit, to walk righteously, this gives us great confidence in battle. On the opposite end, if you are doubting, God or doubting in your walk, it very well could be because there is undealt sin in your life. And if you were to deal with that sin humbly before God and confess it, I would venture to say that doubt would disappear at the same time. So breastplate of righteousness, let's put it on. The third piece of armor, and this is a, a mouthful, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. Now I have to say the whole thing because at first, you know, you could be tempted like, well, why didn't they do just like Nike and say like the shoes of Shalom? You know, like keep it simple. Shalom means peace, right? Because it's not about peace. It's the gospel of peace. And more than that, the readiness of the gospel of peace. Being ready to share the gospel of peace. In other words, look at it this way. We're talking about witnessing, believe it or not. The soldier, the sandals that he wore, they had hobnails in the soles and it's what helped him stand firm in the ground. That, and, and they had to stand a certain way because if not, those hobnails could actually <laughs> hurt them. But they, had to, they, they knew how to stand and they could stand even firmer than any one of us with our sneakers because of the hobnails in the ground. And it kind of, it blew me away when I realized that like, man, who would have thought? We think of witnessing as something that's a command of God and how many of us, maybe we don't always think about doing it. It's kind of a side thought. But what if we actually realize not only is it a command of God and that alone should be our reason to obey and look for every opportunity to do so, 
but it's also what will actually help us stand in the fight. It actually is what helps us stand. And so what I realize is this, and, and Warren Wearsby said it this way, the most victorious Christian is a witnessing Christian, that we are not only meant to stand against the enemy, but we are also meant to stand for the truth of the gospel. We must not be silent. Even in the heat of the battle, we don't get distracted with the enemy's attacks. We remember that the battlefield is full of lost souls around us, desperate to hear the good news. Much like medics in war, we don't focus on fighting only. We seek to save the wounded soldiers or maybe the civilians still in captivity. That's our, our job and also our joy. Oh, the joy of sharing the good news. Uh, if you had that, if you had, had that opportunity, oh, the joy of sharing the good news with your best friend or on the missions trip or in your workplace, in your homes or around coffee. By the way, I know a great place where you can do that, you know, and just share the good news. First uh, Peter 3.15, always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope in you. How? With gentleness and respect, right? In love in truth. But man, witnessing, who would have thought that's how you stand in the battle? And it makes so much sense. Why? Because the enemy wants you to focus on yourself. The shoes fitted, or the feet ready for the gospel of peace keep you outward focused. I'm going to say that again. Witness. Share your faith openly. With words, with your actions, because the enemy wants you to focus on yourself, but the feet ready for the gospel of peace keep you outward focused. Fourth piece of armor, the shield of faith. Again, we look at faith. And what is faith? As, as a soldier of Jesus Christ, it's a trust in the promises and power of God. Let me say two things about the shield. First, we see that the shield uh, keeps us from the flaming darts of the evil one. Let me mention some darts here, and this might surprise you a little bit, but go with me so you can understand the whole of it. Uh, examples of darts. Strife at home. Bankruptcy. Winning the lottery. Ruined by slander. Sickness. Becoming famous. And you're thinking, okay, some of those things are bad, but hey, some of those things are pretty good. What are you talking about? And I use all those examples to point to and to remind you the deception of the enemy. Okay, so what seems to be good could be a fiery dart. It could also be a gift from God. Don't get me wrong. We need to discern if it's a gift from God, which will be good, or if it's a fiery dart of the enemy, which will be accompanied with lies. So is there a lie behind it? How do you identify the lie? Let me give you some examples because the darts that I mentioned in, in, in itself, they don't destroy you or they, they don't destroy the essence of you. They can't destroy your soul, but the lies can. And so what are these lies? Uh, if we look at strife at home, the lie would be resentment for the other. Um, bankruptcy, the lie would be a spirit of despair. That's the lie of the enemy. Um, winning the lottery, what's the lie there? If it's, if it's from God, great, and you can use it for, for good. But if it's a lie from the enemy, if you, if you identify it as a fiery dart, you'll know it. Why? Because it's caused great greed in your life. Um, that's where I'm showing you the deception of the enemy. What seems good might not. Ruined by slander. Nothing good there. But the lie is isolation. Now you're separate. And that's what the devil wants, remember. Um, how about um, sickness? 
the lie there is doubt that God could actually do something for you. Well, what about, um, you know, becoming famous? Nothing wrong with that. If it's from the devil, the lie will be causing great pride in your life. So see, it's about identifying if it's a lie from the devil or a gift from God. And may God give us discernment in that. We know it by the lie that accompanies it. And in that sense, we need to extinguish the dart by refuting the lie and believing God's truth. So that's the first element of the the shield I wanted to share with you. There's another element of the shield uh, for a soldier. The shield actually was shorter on one end and longer on the other. And it's because it had the capacity to interlock with other shields. And so the great lesson for us, the other function here, is that we're not just called to stand against the enemy. We're not just called to stand for the gospel. We're also called to stand with our brothers and sisters. The shield can interlock with others and make a bigger shield that becomes impenetrable for the enemy. And so this is what the soldiers did whenever they were facing the enemy. And and as they got even closer, it it gave them reason to, you know, uh, and they gave them motivation to get close together so that they would not uh, lose uh, anyone. And so that's the lesson for us is that your life is dependent on sticking together. We talked about how the enemy uses anything to separate us from the body or the head. Listen, this is another a prime example here. Um, if you know of someone or if it's even you and you feel, you could probably feel maybe lukewarm, like you're not as, as hot for God as you used to be. You're not wanting to be as passionate for him. Could it be, the pattern, could it be that you have strayed from the flock? I would venture to say if you're here this morning, that's not your case, but maybe it has been and you identify it. Or maybe it's something that you've been kind of considering. No Christian is meant to fight alone. The shield of faith is also we work together. In the highlands or the heartache, like we sang, we open up to one another. We're vulnerable to one another. And that can happen, you know, in friendships. Um, but, it, but we also provide uh, very uh, special ways to do that. As you go through growth track and be a part of a group and be a part of the crew, we do life together. This is so important that you find your brothers in arms or your sisterhood. So the shield of faith, we put it on, we take it on. The fifth armor is the helmet of salvation. Now that word is also so important. And the fact that it's the helmet is so important. Why? Because it protects you from the lethal blows. The lethal blows come to the head, right? It's not like when you're wrestling with your brother and you say, all right, you can hit me anywhere, but not the face, not the face. The enemy does not play nice. The enemy does not play fair. He will hit the face. He will hit what is weak and what is vulnerable. And that usually is right here, the battle of the mind. And so we put on the helmet of salvation. What does that mean? That when those thoughts come, the lies come, we remind ourselves who we are in Christ and more importantly, whose we are, who we belong to. And we do this how? Through salvation and nothing else. What I mean by that, it is not by our works, We don't put on a helmet of our works or the helmet of our experience or the helmet of our knowledge, not even the helmet of our theology. We put on the helmet of salvation. It is by grace and grace alone that we are saved. And that's how we can walk in victory because we're walking in Christ's victory. That's what salvation is. And when we do that, we understand nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The last piece of armor is a weapon. The sword of the spirit. Now, unlike maybe what you may have seen on the felt boards, it's not this big sword. This was an 18-inch dagger that was primarily used for offensive uh, weapons. And so the reason is that the armor 
than we have been seeing up till now is to stand against the enemy, is to stand for the gospel. So it's the idea of almost defense, right? It's to stand with the body. But guess what? We also have an attack mode where we can stand and be like, all right, it's time to attack. What is this attack mode? Very interesting. The sword of the spirit, the word of God. When faced with temptation, when faced with evil, we have the word of God as our attack mode. Nothing else. Jesus even modeled this himself. Think about it. In Luke chapter four, when he was tempted by the devil, he's the word of God. He could have said different things, but to model it for us, he purposely used scripture in the Old Testament to defeat the devil as a reminder for us that the attack that we use is the word of God. It is written. That's how you fight back. So practically, what does that mean? What's your weakness? What's your weak spot? What's your Achilles heel, right? Could it be anxiety, um, fear of failure, guilt, resentment, shame, unforgiveness? Practically, here's what you do. Find out what the Bible has to say about those things. And you can, through Google, through Bible app, there's many ways now that are helpful where you can find those verses and find them and put those truths in front of you. Put it on your fridge, put it uh, in your bathroom by, by the mirror where you can be reminded of those truths. You know where the enemy attacks you and you need to uh, uh, undo that lie with God's truth. And as you read it and as you learn it, when things happen, you'll be able to right away even quote it if you need to and just know how to attack like Jesus did. It is written. And listen, the more you use a physical sword, the, the duller it becomes, right? But guess what? The more you use God's word, the sword of the spirit, man, the sharper it is. So read it, study it, love it. The better you know God's word, the easier it is to detect Satan's lies. And after having done all, to stand firm. So that's our armor, the whole armor of God. And like I said, it's a picture of the Messiah. Remember in Ephesians chapter four, we were told that we are to put off the old and put on the new. And then uh, in Romans chapter 13, it shows us that we are to put on the new. That is to put on Christ. And is he not our truth? Is he not the truth? Is he not our righteousness? Is Jesus not the gospel of peace? Is he not the author and finisher of our faith? Is he not our salvation? Is he not the word of God? And so you see, we put on a daily appropriation of uh, some, some tools that God has given us. But in the end, what we're also putting on is Christ himself. And we're walking in that victory. The battle is won. He's fighting it for us. We join him in that fight. It's conquered ground, but we are fighting and we've already won. But we need to stand. We need to stand. So know your environment. You're in a war. Identify the correct enemy, which we did, and put on the equipment the king has provided. That's what Ephesians 6 is all about. So as I call up the band, I can't leave without talking about one more thing. And that is our secret weapon. We have a secret weapon. And what I mean by that, right away, I thought of uh, something that's not a weapon per se, but it's this idea in any kind of story, right, where uh, the, the hero uh, is losing. So I, I, the idea I thought of was someone enters a ping pong tournament and man, they're playing each adversary and they're winning. And now they're in the finals and it's getting a little harder. And the opponent thinks that he's beaten him. And then he says, guess what? I'm actually left-handed and then beats him. Right? That's the secret weapon kind of thing I'm talking about. Okay. 
Uh, on a more sober definition of what the secret weapon is, uh, I got this from someone uh, in the military. It's a previously unknown weapon unveiled at the perfect moment for a major strategic advantage. Come on, who wants a major strategic advantage on the enemy, right? We've identified the correct enemy, but now we want that major strategic advantage. He goes on to say an, a quintessential example of a secret weapon is the first nuclear bomb developed for years in a secret only to be revealed at the end of World War II to prevent the need for a land inv invasion of Japan, saving potentially millions of lives on both sides. Okay, so this secret weapon that we have, we also develop it in the secret. It isn't a piece of armor per se, but Paul mentions it in this passage. And I'm sure you can tell what it is. We read in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The phrase doesn't end there. It's a comma. It goes on to say, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Pray for me. Prayer. Guys, prayer is our secret weapon. The weapon that enables us to wear the armor and enables us to wield the sword. So let's put on the full, the whole armor of God so that we may stand against the enemy, that we may stand for the gospel, and that we may stand with one another. Amen? So that being said, let's all stand and let's all pray. And the way I want to pray is for us to pray as a people, as the body of Christ together. I've provided for you in your outlines, there's a prayer and we can also follow it on the screen, but I hope you'll grab one because uh, in it, we took the time to, to write it out. It's a prayer that we took some excerpts from the navigators Uh, prayer on the full armor of God. And it's just real rich. And you can, again, put it somewhere where you'll always see it. Maybe read it with your family every morning, whatever it may be. But I want us to read it together as we end. As we close together, we're going to take our time right now, breathe. We've got a whole week in front of us and the enemy doesn't play nice, remember. So let's put on the full armor of God today together as a corporate body of Christ. And then remember to do that daily as well. And again, it's not some magic formula or anything like that. It's just us putting to words the truth that we believe and that Paul has been teaching us through the Holy Spirit. So pray with me, the full armor of God. Um, and so uh, what you'll do is pray with me. Don't pray after me. Let's pray it together. I'm going to count to three and we'll just go with it. Okay. So one, two, three. Lord, help me to stand. Equip me with the belt of truth. May your truth rule in my heart, in my mind, and on my lips. The breastplate of righteousness. Apart from you, there is none righteous. But through Jesus, I'm made righteous in your sight. May I live as a righteous person. The shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. May I reflect the gospel in my words and actions that through me others may be drawn one step closer to you. The shield of faith, may I take you at your word concerning your promises of everlasting love, abundant life, and so much more. The helmet of salvation, remind me that I've been saved by grace and nothing can separate me from your love. In your grace, help me to say no to all ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. May your Holy Spirit reign in my life and bring to my mind 
just the right Bible verses to be in my heart and on my lips. May I be filled with the Spirit and ready with Scripture as you were, Jesus, when the devil tempted you. Finally, Lord, keep me in an attitude of prayer. Remind me to pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Cause me to be alert and always praying for the saints to be joyful and to give thanks in everything. In Jesus' name I stand. Amen. Thanks for hanging out with us at Generation. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Generation Pensacola or go to the website at generationpensacola.com and from wherever you download your podcasts. If today's teaching impacted you, we'd love to hear about it. So please drop us a note.